I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A legendary showman's mysterious demise. The crew say it was a storm, but others say it was actually murder. A race to unmask a hacker spy. I'd never heard of this before this is weird and a predatory beast of origins unknown appears to eat everything from kittens to cattle within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed these are the mysteries at the museum Across the river from Cincinnati sits the quaint town of Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, once a major foothold for Union forces during the Civil War. But tucked away on one of the city's quiet residential streets, three unassuming buildings celebrate a lesser-known part of American history, the Vent Haven Museum, the world's only institution devoted to the art of ventriloquism. The collection boasts more than 700 dummies, from antique clowns to riverboat captains, to a caricature of President Ronald Reagan. But four tattered and weathered items in the collection tell a particularly sinister tale. There's some wood that is cracking, paint that has chipped and is wearing away. There's also some water damage that's evident. But these dummies aren't just victims of the ravages of time. The condition of these items definitely speak to a terrible tragedy. To what mysterious disaster did these dummies bear witness? It's the early 1900s. Across the country, audiences are flocking in droves to the bright lights of vaudeville variety shows. And one of the most acclaimed entertainers of the day is ventriloquist and illusionist William Wood. For the past 20 years, he's been mystifying crowds with his incredible performances, joined by his young daughter, Bertha, as his assistant. But his most popular routine is a one-of-a-kind act featuring his own handcrafted dummies. 
Wood would use about nine different characters in his show. He was able to seamlessly move from one character to the next, throwing his voice into each one of them. Wood's spectacular show has propelled him to stardom. Capitalizing on his popularity, the entertainer decides to take his show on the road, traveling from Mexico all the way down to South America. But in the rush to get the tour started, Wood realizes there are no passenger ships available, so they're forced to find an alternative. Wood and his daughter decide to board a small tugboat to go across the Gulf of Mexico. Named the Colnetto Bullness and manned by a crew of local sailors, the rundown vessel sets off on the 600-mile trip across the Gulf. Will Wood and his daughter actually, though, were the only passengers on board this ship. They knew they were in for a long ride. It's the last journey the two will ever make. Days after the tugboat left port, a weather-beaten life raft is spotted off the Gulf Coast. When it reaches shore, the haggard and tired men within make a shocking announcement to bystanders. The Colnetto Bullness sunk out at sea. Authorities bring the crew members in for questioning in the hopes of piecing together what happened. They say that only a few days after leaving the port, a huge storm would take place in the Gulf of Mexico. According to the sailors, the raging squall engulfed the tugboat without warning. The crewmen abandoned ship for the life raft, but in the chaos of the storm, Wood and his daughter drowned in the turbulent waters. Within days, the story spreads across the U.S. The public is devastated by the loss of such a beloved entertainer and his young daughter. But while the nation mourns, not everyone believes the account of the ventriloquist's tragic death. It doesn't seem to make sense that the rest of the crew would survive, and only Will Wood and his daughter would be the two that would perish in this tragedy. Wood's fans and supporters begin to wonder. Perhaps their deaths weren't an accident at all. As the pieces of the sailor's story come together, a startling discrepancy arises. There's no record of any storm. Other boats were in the area, and no one said that they noticed any violent storms, such as the crew suggests. The shocking revelation prompts many to ask, if the sailors lied about the storm, what else could they be hiding? Some propose a chilling possibility. Wood and his daughter didn't drown at all. They were murdered. But why would the crew want to kill the beloved entertainer and his daughter? One theory is that they were after the $20,000 Wood was reportedly carrying in banknotes to finance his tour. Though cash wasn't the only thing of value in his possession. Some speculate that the sailors aimed to steal the secrets of Wood's magic act and sell them to the highest bidder. Possibly, Will Wood catches the crew members rifling through his magical equipment. A fight ensues. They throw Will Wood overboard, along with his daughter, to drown. In the end, no one is formally charged in the deaths of William Wood and his daughter. Then, months later, a mysterious chest engraved with the name Wood washes up on the shores of Texas. When curious bystanders open it, they find a set of ventriloquist dummies, four of which are now on display at the Vent Haven Museum. 
damaged by saltwater, these wooden dolls are perhaps the final witnesses to the fate that befell their master. If only these dummies could talk, what story would they tell of that night? Though we may never know what really happened to William Wood and his daughter Bertha, these ventriloquist dummies are a reminder of the chilling death of a beloved performer who entertained the world. Mount Holly, New Jersey boasts colonial roots that date back to 1677. But amidst the historic homes and church spires is one building dedicated to the area's grittier past, the Burlington County Prison Museum. Once an active county jail, this museum chronicles centuries of crime and punishment in the region, featuring the original 1811 key to the prison's front door, an elaborate metal safe, and preserved cell blocks. But among these antique relics of detention is a more dignified memento. The artifact is about five and a half inches long, made of hickory wood, and it has a bowl at one end and a stem at the other. As author John Reisinger can attest, this carved pipe belonged to a man who bore witness to the breathtaking twists and turns of a star-studded crime. People around the world were on the edge of their seats waiting to see what would happen next. To whom did this pipe belong? And what role did he play in one of the most famous cases of the 20th century? 1932, Burlington County, New Jersey. Ellis Parker is the local chief of detectives with a sterling record of cracking seemingly unsolvable cases. His exploits have earned him the nickname, the American Sherlock Holmes. He knew how a criminal thought, and once Alice Parker got on the case, they got solved. But on March 2nd, Parker learns of a case that will be his greatest challenge yet. Legendary aviator Charles Lindbergh's infant son has been kidnapped from his Hopewell, New Jersey home. In the child's place, a ransom note demanding $50,000. Charles Lindbergh was probably the most famous man in America at the time. He'd been the first person to fly the Atlantic solo. So America was fixated on this case like nothing before. The kidnapping is dubbed the crime of the century. And although it occurred outside his jurisdiction, Ellis Parker launches his own independent inquiry. Parker realized that if he were able to solve the Lindbergh kidnapping, he would be famous across the country. As is often his practice, while searching for clues, he smokes a pipe, like this one, at the Burlington County Prison Museum. Within days, Parker receives a surprising offer of assistance from an old acquaintance. His name is Paul Wendell. Paul Wendell was a practicing attorney for a number of years, and he claimed he had a number of underworld connections. Parker thinks this tack is worth a shot, and the two men get to work reaching out to Wendell's contacts. But soon, the case takes a dark turn. Just two months after the kidnapping, the Lindbergh baby's body is discovered. Now the case was a murder investigation. With the stakes raised, Parker is desperate for a break. But after months of tireless investigation, Paul Wendell's once promising leads proved to be dead ends. Then, on September 20th, 1934, the FBI makes a stunning announcement. The New York police arrested Bruno Houtman for the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. 
Hauptmann is an uneducated German immigrant with an impressive rap sheet. Authorities are confident they've caught their man. But Ellis Parker is not convinced. Parker believes the true kidnapper must be an intelligent, middle-aged man with something to prove. Hauptmann does not fit the profile, but someone he knows well does. He came to look on the perpetrator as a person very much like Paul Wendell. Parker begins to wonder about the motivation behind his old friend's offer to help solve the case. The former lawyer had been disbarred years earlier and still remained bitter over the proceedings. He certainly meets the criteria. Not only that, but Wendell also let slip that he needs $50,000 to get back on his feet. This was the same amount that was demanded as the ransom. Parker begins to suspect that Wendell provided false clues to intentionally mislead their investigation. But before Parker can dig up any hard evidence, Bruno Hauptmann is found guilty of felony murder. The sentence was death in the electric chair. But in March 1936, just days before the scheduled execution, Ellis Parker makes a startling claim. The legendary sleuth has the signed confession of the true killer, Paul Wendell. So did the authorities get it wrong? Is Paul Wendell the real Lindbergh kidnapper? It's 1936, New Jersey. As investigators wrap up the Lindbergh kidnapping case, an esteemed detective named Ellis Parker makes a startling announcement. Authorities have convicted the wrong man. Parker believes his own partner, a man named Paul Wendell, is responsible and has a signed confession to prove it. So did Wendell truly commit this heinous crime? As police sort through the stunning claim, the execution of Bruno Hauptmann, the convicted kidnapper, is put on hold. Investigators had learned through the years that anything Ellis Parker comes up with can usually be relied on. Paul Wendell is arrested and taken in for questioning. But while in custody, he makes a shocking declaration. Wendell insisted that the only reason he wrote and signed the confession was that he had been abducted and tortured to force him to do so. And investigators soon learn that the man behind the coercion is none other than Ellis Parker. Everyone was shocked. Nobody saw this coming from someone as respected as Ellis Parker. The star detective is charged with kidnapping, found guilty, and sentenced to six years behind bars. His stellar reputation is left in ruins. And with Wendell's confession proven false, Bruno Hauptmann's execution goes forward. But the question remains, what drove the esteemed lawman to take such reckless action? After Parker passes away in 1940, physicians present a stunning theory. Parker's death was caused by a brain tumor, and some believe that this mass changed his personality and impaired his judgment. In his altered state, his obsession with securing his legacy could very well have driven him to extremes. The crime of the century ended up eating him alive. And today, this pipe at the Burlington County Prison Museum in New Jersey tells of the tragic fall from grace of a man who was once lauded 
as the American Sherlock Holmes. Once the center of the region's shipbuilding industry, the quaint town of Essex, Connecticut is today home to the Connecticut River Museum. Here, exhibits featuring antique charting tools, intricate model boats, and wooden ship wheels celebrate the area's crucial contributions to maritime exploration. But among these historical artifacts, one strange-looking object commands attention. It's about six feet high. It's made of very thick oak. It has an amazing system inside of cranks and levers and pedals. According to museum curator Jerry Roberts, this odd contraption was designed to change the balance of a conflict that shaped the nation. This was truly one of the most advanced pieces of technology of its time. So what is this device? And how did it play an indispensable role in the future of naval warfare? 1775. American revolutionary forces are at war with Great Britain, fighting tooth and nail for an independent United States. But the British have an overwhelming advantage. The world's largest navy. Concentrated firepower could be brought to bear on any land fortress, and every one of those ships could bring in massive numbers of troops and supplies. With no real naval force to speak of, the Americans are powerless to break this constant onslaught. But in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, one patriot is determined to change the balance of power in the war. His name is David Bushnell. David Bushnell was not the average man. Today we might call him a visionary. While a student at Yale University, Bushnell devised a revolutionary device that could potentially be put to use against the British ships an underwater bomb. His bomb design is surprisingly simple. A watertight barrel containing gunpowder and an internal clock trigger. With the right placement, it could cause extensive damage. If he could actually place it underneath a major British warship, it would be a game changer. But there's a problem. How do you get that bomb where it's needed most? About 24 feet deep underneath a British warship and attach it to that ship to make good on the promise of his new weapon, Bushnell must come up with some sort of delivery system. It's a monumental task. But after months of tinkering, he's managed to design a groundbreaking device, the world's first submarine. Made of airtight oak, the vessel is powered by an occupant using his hands and feet to control a propeller and rudder. By allowing water into the tank at his feet, the pilot can sink the craft under the surface. To ascend, the water is pumped back out. It was really a staggering piece of technology. A replica of this remarkable craft, named the turtle since it resembles two of the animal's shells bonded together, is now on display at the Connecticut River Museum in Essex. To make the turtle combat ready, Bushnell attaches his bomb to the outside of the vessel. He then runs a line from its top to a spike-like screw. From inside the sub, the operator can twist the screw into the enemy boat's hull, thus attaching the explosive to the ship. By September 1776, the turtle is ready for deployment, and the rebel-held city of New York, under the command of George Washington, will be the site of its first mission. Washington and his army are pinned down. 
and the Royal Navy is getting ready for a major campaign to end the war. But if the turtle can strike at the heart of the fleet, specifically at the command vessel, the HMS Eagle, the rebels may have a chance. On September 6th, under cover of darkness, the turtle is launched into New York Harbor. At the controls of the world's first submarine is Sergeant Ezra Lee. Nothing like this has ever happened before, and no experience has prepared him for this moment. Can Sergeant Lee and the Turtle do the unthinkable and bring down the most powerful Navy in the world? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's September 6th, 1776, and in New York Harbor, the world's first submarine is about to engage in a surprise attack against the British fleet. Designed by Connecticut patriot David Bushnell, the craft is armed with a heavy bomb. So can this nautical innovation named the Turtle bring down the Royal Navy? Inside the vessel, pilot Ezra Lee works furiously to navigate the sub towards his main target in the British fleet the HMS Eagle. He has to sink down about 24 feet. Once he's at the depth he needs to be, now he has to go forward. Finally in position below the ship, Lee attempts to attach the bomb to the bottom of the boat. But there's a problem. The screw meant to penetrate the hull and pin the explosive device in place isn't working. It seems he can't get it to bite. And that's not all. The currents and the tides in the harbor are scraping the submarine along the bottom of the hull. He cannot hold his position. Lee finds himself swept wide of the ship 
and quickly surfaces to get his bearings. There, he realizes dawn is breaking. Pretty soon, he will be very visible to everybody on the British ships. Lee has no choice but to abandon the mission and head back for base. But in his wake, he leaves a surprise for the enemy. He jettisons the heavy bomb, automatically triggering the device. 20 minutes later, it explodes. Much to the astonishment and fright of the British. While the bomb fails to destroy any warships, the turtle's impact is felt. From then on, the British had to be much more cautious wherever they took one of their fleets. And though the submarine never succeeds in battle, its legacy lives on. The first very crucial step had been taken towards successful combat underwater. And today, this replica of Bushnell's turtle at the Connecticut River Museum is a fitting testament to a visionary inventor who saw the future of naval combat and laid the groundwork for submarine development across the world. Portland, Maine lures 3.6 million tourists a year with a rugged coastline, picturesque harbor, and rustic New England charm. And adding to the city's mystique is an unusual institution, the International Cryptozoology Museum. Here, visitors can learn the stories behind mythical creatures like the jackalope, the Fiji mermaid, and Bigfoot. But there's one artifact that could make the leap from fiction to fact. It's about 10 inches long. It has almost a lunar-like surface. You can see that there's little hills and valleys, and there's something very mysterious about that. According to curator and cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, this oblong plaster cast may prove the existence of a murderous monster that stalks the American South. It will shake the foundations of zoology, anthropology, and science. To what unknown animal does this giant footprint belong? October 2003, Campbell County, Tennessee. Animal control officer George Moses answers a call from a frantic resident whose cat has gone missing. And this caller is not alone. Over the past few weeks, close to 100 people have reported missing cats. Others state their pets have been killed and mutilated. Animals don't go missing, don't get mutilated in concentrated pockets unless there's something else behind it. Moses concludes that a coyote or some other wild animal is responsible. But some are not convinced. They claim to have caught fleeting glimpses of a massive, shadowy figure in the forest. And left in its wake was the pungent odor of sulfur. Moses was getting all of these reports that this creature smells. It smells very bad. Before long, the press gets wind of the story, setting off a wave of panic. But without a solid eyewitness account, Officer Moses wonders if this is simply a case of mass hysteria. That is, until October 20th. A woman named Donna Keithley is relaxing in her kitchen when she hears neighborhood dogs barking in the distance. She rushes to the screen door to investigate. What this woman sees is an ape-like creature. It had long arms. Standing on its hind legs, the beast is as tall as a human 
and appears to weigh close to 400 pounds. Keithley is frozen in her tracks. In its massive hands, the creature clutches a trembling kitten. Terrified for the tiny hostage, Donna screams at the beast. Then the ape-like creature drops the kitten and disappears into the brush. And she said she still could smell it after it left. So what is this fearsome creature that is killing cats and terrorizing the people of Tennessee? It's 2003 in Campbell County, Tennessee. A foul-smelling ape-like creature is preying on pets and terrorizing local residents. So what is this bizarre and elusive beast, and where did it come from? When cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman hears about the disturbing encounters in Tennessee, he thinks he knows what is responsible. In fact, he's been tracking this bizarre beast for over 40 years. In 1962, a young Lauren was exploring the backwoods of Illinois with some friends. We came upon this very distinctive imprint. The footprint clearly showed a toe out to the side. That's a feature of the great apes, which includes chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas. But great apes are native to Africa and Southeast Asia, not the American Midwest. Coleman believes he may have discovered an entirely new, uncategorized species. So he took photos of the track and made a plaster cast from the image, the same one now on display at the International Cryptozoology Museum. Since the discovery, Coleman has dedicated his life to identifying the beast that made this mark. And he's convinced it's the same creature spotted in Campbell County. Throughout the American South, there's all kinds of people that have come across footprints that look like our hand with the toe out to the side. They call it the skunk ape. Coleman believes the beast's lingering stench of sulfur is a side effect of bacteria growing in its wet fur. Its other defining characteristic, a taste for flesh. This ape appears to eat everything from kittens to cattle. But officials in Campbell County offer a different theory. They believe the beast in question is simply a chimpanzee, ape, or orangutan that escaped from a local zoo or private collector. But there's one problem with this theory. Nobody was missing a giant orangutan. Nobody was missing an ape. Over time, sightings of the so-called skunk ape die down and the rash of disappearing cats in Campbell County also abates. It seems that the true identity of the cat-killing creature will remain a mystery. But this plaster cast at the International Cryptozoology Museum serves as the most compelling argument that a new species of killer ape stalks the American South. 50 miles from San Francisco, California, is the city of Mountain View. Named for its spectacular vistas of the Santa Cruz Mountains, today it is known as the central hub of Silicon Valley. And it's here, amidst some of the world's most famous tech companies, that visitors will find the Computer History Museum. From archaic diodes and transistors to massive computer consoles, 
This institution celebrates the building blocks of the information age. But one item is linked to the darker side of the digital revolution. This artifact is about two feet long by one foot wide by a foot high. It has a screen in the middle of it, surrounded by knobs and dials. According to curator Dag Spicer, this common electronic measuring device is connected to a high-stakes game of subterfuge and cunning. This artifact played a key role in the very first case of international computer espionage. What is this contraption? And what part did it play in a daring breach of national security? August 1986, Berkeley, California. The internet is in its infancy. Its few users are mainly universities, military bases, and scientific labs. And one such institution is the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which uses the nascent network to connect to other research centers across the country. Well, we had really huge number of connections to the outside world, something like 45 or 50 dial-in modems. Each employee who accesses the network is assigned a unique user ID and is charged a fee for its usage. On only his second day of work at the lab, a systems administrator named Cliff Stoll is reviewing the latest billing summary when he notices something odd. It's off by 75 cents. There's an error in our accounting system to the tune of nickels and dimes. I'm saying, this is weird. Even the smallest accounting discrepancy must be investigated. Start looking and notice in the accounting logs, someone's added a new user to our user base without permission. Stoll assumes a prankster from within the Berkeley National Labs is responsible. So he promptly deletes the account from the system and considers the case closed. But when a government agency writes to complain someone at the lab is trying to break into its system, he realizes this is more than a simple prank. Somebody has used our system to sneak into Lord knows where. Stoll reviews the account's records and comes to believe that it's the same unauthorized user whose account he deleted, which leads him to a chilling realization. This could be the work of a hacker. To observe the infiltrator's actions, Stoll comes up with a novel plan. He rounds up 50 printers and attaches one to each of the network's 50 phone lines. Every time someone logs onto the network, the printers record their actions. After monitoring the lines over the course of a weekend, Stoll draws a startling conclusion. The infiltrator is not only hacking into Berkeley's system, he is using it to enter a classified military computer network called Milnet. Stoll realizes that using Berkeley's system, the hacker can circumvent the military's security and download highly sensitive files. I'd never heard of this before. Who and where is this high-tech infiltrator? As Stoll watches the hacker's activity, he is struck by an epiphany. He can estimate the hacker's distance from the lab with a piece of equipment known as an oscilloscope, just like this one at the Computer History Museum. An oscilloscope was the Swiss Army knife that you would use to do a very primitive type of geolocation. Just as an echo indicates the distance across a canyon, the signal delay indicates the distance between the hacker's computer and the Berkeley network. 
When Stoll himself accesses the system, the signal delay is only a fraction of a second because he's in the same geographic location as the network. But the signal delay from the hacker's machine suggests he is up to 6,000 miles away. It became immediately apparent that whoever was breaking into my computer was not local. In fact, it's likely the hacker is well outside the borders of the United States. Realizing he may be contending with a foreign spy, Stoll springs into action. We've got trouble. I did what anybody else would do. I call the FBI. The FBI concludes that they can put a trace on the phone line the hacker is using. But there's a problem. Who's ever doing this is connecting for 20 minutes, half an hour, and then disconnecting. And we lose them. But in order to trace the call, Stoll will have to keep the hacker logged on for two hours. So what will it take for Cliff Stoll to outsmart the nefarious hacker? It's 1987 in Berkeley, California. A computer systems administrator named Cliff Stoll has discovered a foreign spy is hacking his employer's network. In order for the FBI to trace the hacker's location, Cliff has to keep him online for two hours. So can Stoll trick the hacker into getting himself caught? To keep the hacker engaged for at least two hours, Cliff devises an ingenious ruse. All I need to do is put something that's so interesting and so magnetically cool that somebody breaking into my computer is going to want to spend a long time looking at it. He creates a plethora of phony files on the Berkeley network, full of carefully chosen keywords like nuclear, Pentagon, and strategic defense to entice the hacker. And on January 16, 1987, Cliff springs his carefully laid trap. One day afternoon, the guy connects and discovers that there's the, the super secret pile of literature, and he starts downloading it. With the infiltrator copying file after file, the FBI has ample time to trace the line. And finally, they are able to narrow down the culprit's location to West Germany. And they trace it all the way back to somebody's apartment in downtown Hanover. On June 23rd, investigators track down and apprehend the hacker, a 25-year-old chain-smoking computer programmer named Marcus Hess. It turns out that this guy in Hanover was working to steal information that's militarily sensitive and sell it to the Soviet KGB. Thanks to Stoll, Hess is apprehended before he is able to divulge any severely damaging information. He is found guilty of espionage and sentenced to three years in prison. And Cliff Stoll is lauded for successfully solving one of the first computer hacker cases in U.S. history. Today, this oscilloscope at the Computer History Museum is a tribute to the unwavering dedication of one man who heroically protected our nation's secrets during the Internet's earliest days. Just 25 miles outside of Chicago is the quiet town of Lamont, Illinois. Founded in 1836, it was first known for its rich limestone quarries. But today, this Midwestern suburb is home to one of the country's most important research facilities, the University of Chicago's Argonne National Laboratory. 
visitors can see uranium ore from Wyoming, a sample of rocket fuel, and artifacts from Department of Energy experiments. But there's an item on display that reveals one of the nation's biggest secrets. This artifact is gray, it's heavy, it's about 16 inches long and four inches height and width. It's kind of sleek. According to atomic expert Cynthia Kelly, this plain slab hides an explosive secret. This gray brick, as innocuous as it looked, was the key to changing the world. What role did this heavy block play in an earth-shattering experiment? 1942, with the United States locked in the throes of World War II, the government fears that the Germans are on track to build the planet's first atomic bomb. The pursuit of an atomic bomb was a very deadly race. We fear Germany is a year or two years ahead of us. To close the gap, the U.S. government enlists one of the best names in science, Enrico Fermi. Enrico Fermi was a brilliant Italian physicist. His assignment, build a nuclear reactor that can harness the power of the atom. And Fermi, who has recently escaped fascist Italy with his family, knows the importance of his mission. This would be used for a weapon, and they knew that. This was war. In February of 1942, Fermi and his fellow scientists gather at the University of Chicago to begin their quest. The first problem that Enrico Fermi had to solve was where were they going to build this reactor? With no time to spare, Fermi picks a nearby location for the reactor, an abandoned squash court under the stands at the University of Chicago's Staggs Field. But there is a danger. It was very close proximity to a large population. But with the clock ticking, Fermi and his team covertly begin construction on what is called Chicago Pile One, a project so secret, not even the president of the university is privy to its details. In 12-hour shifts, the crew works day and night to assemble layer upon layer of graphite blocks, just like this one from Argonne National Lab. All told, the pile contains nearly 400 tons of graphite, a material intended to contain the nuclear energy. Interspersed throughout this structure are highly volatile uranium pellets, the radioactive material which will create the reaction. The challenge is controlling the potentially lethal process. You have to have a way to end the process or else it could get out of control. Fermi believes the key to regulating the reactor's heat is cadmium. So holes are drilled into the reactor into which cadmium rods will be inserted. When the rods are removed, the nuclear reaction begins. But when they are reinserted, it stops. Or at least, that's the idea. This was on the frontiers of science. No one had ever done this. So there was a lot of unknown. If Fermi were wrong, and this reaction was not to be controlled, everyone in the room would have been killed. On December 2nd, 1942, tensions are high as the $1.5 million project gets underway deep below the stadium. But will Enrico Fermi's experiment actually work?
December 1942. Physicist Enrico Fermi is working in a secret facility in Chicago, where he hopes to conduct the first controlled release of nuclear energy. If he succeeds, the U.S. could be one step closer to building an atomic bomb and winning World War II. If he fails, the results could be catastrophic. Fermi gives the orders, and at 9.45 a.m., the cadmium rod is withdrawn. All of a sudden, the reaction takes off. They can hear the monitors going crazy. The monitors indicate that heat energy is being released from the nucleus of the uranium atoms. And at 3.25 p.m., Fermi declares that the pile has reached critical. This means that it would continue on almost exponentially uh, to produce new energy. But with the goal achieved, Fermi continues to observe the reaction for another four and a half minutes. People are nervous. They wonder, when's he going to stop it? Finally, Fermi gives the word, and the cadmium rods are placed back into the pile. The team watches the monitors in anticipation. Finally, the reaction stops. On only his first try, Fermi has successfully sustained and controlled the first nuclear chain reaction in history. A great watershed has happened here. This moment is really the beginning of the atomic age. But this achievement is tempered by the awareness that the nation is on a path to create the most destructive weapon the world has ever known. They realize this may be the beginning of the end. Armed with Fermi's findings, the U.S. develops the world's first atomic weapons. In August of 1945, bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, effectively ending World War II. And the ethical justification for this action has been debated ever since. Today, this graphite brick is on display at the Argonne National Laboratory, where visitors can learn about the unprecedented experiment that happened in the most unlikely of places. From a hair-raising hominid to submarine sabotage, a vanishing ventriloquist to high-tech treachery. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.